the worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate defines the culture that you're in. And so I, I think that's important. And by the way, leaders, if you are the ones behaving poorly, you're setting that bar low from the start. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is the Maiden Voyage of the Optimal Tribe podcast. Today, I'll be talking with uh, Ryan Ripley, one of the co-authors of uh, Fixing Your uh, Scrum, along with uh, Todd Miller, the other co-author of that book. And uh, Ryan has been a longtime friend. Uh, We saw the first Matrix together (laughs) in the theater, if that uh, gives you a hint of uh, when we met. And uh, back when we both had a little bit more hair on our heads, but uh, I'll I'll let Ryan go ahead and introduce himself. Uh, thanks for uh, Ryan for being on the show, and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you. Yeah, no, thanks, Mike. This is cool to be on episode number one, right? Um, That's right. Yep. Introductions. Let's see. So I'm a professional Scrum trainer with Scrum.org, and so everyone's like, "What the heck is that?" Um, I travel the country and part of the world, or I used to before quarantine. Now I stay at home and teach virtually, but I help companies from the fortune, fortune 10, all the way up to the fortune 5,000, um, help. I help them write software a little bit better, uh, work as a team and basically reinforce all the skills that they should have learned in kindergarten, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of that work, um, wrote a book, like you said, um, pretty fascinating process. Um, so I got up, they got that under the belt, host a podcast, do a bunch of writing. Um, but yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. I guess for the past 20 years, I've worked in companies helping them try to get products out the door a little cleaner, a little quicker, a little sooner, and with a little more quality. How about that? That's great. Um, so, you know, I started this, I, well, I started Optimal Tribe because I want to make... I want to make the workplace better and I want to make work better. And I see agile and scrum as helping to achieve that. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And, but a lot of people probably aren't familiar with that. Can you describe agile in, in scrum and whatever? You think it helps to compare and contrast to, to all the ways that companies used to work. And so you know, 20 years ago when I entered the workforce, you know, we had to do, and, and this still happens today, but let's figure out everything up front. Let's do a budget up front. Let's do a calendar up front. Let's do a schedule up front. Let's try to predict how the next two years are going to go on this big initiative. We'll get all the requirements figured out. We'll do all the design. We'll do all the architecture. We'll have everything known up front. And then we would spend the next 18 to 24 months, um, learning about all the reasons why this upfront plan wasn't right. You know, but, but by the time we got halfway into a project and big problems would show up, it was almost too late. We had so much invested, like there was a sunk cost to, to scrapping an architecture that we thought would be good. Or there was this, um, you know, there, there is repercussions for going back to leadership and saying that, Hey, you know, 18 months ago, we thought this was true. Now it isn't. And so there's that repercussions for being wrong. And, and people were just suffering through these projects. And, and quite honestly, yes, we got some stuff done, but a lot of the projects ended up, we would just cut the stuff that didn't make it by the date, um, still release something, throw the party, pretend like it was perfect and move on. And back in 2001, 
uh, 17 software developers got together. They were in Utah at a ski lodge called Snowbird. And they said, you know what, this doesn't feel right. This is, we're trying to predict all of these things up front in a really complex world. And we've proven over and over and over again that we're not really good at that. I think COVID-19 is a beautiful example of how we just do not know what's going on, right? There's more unknown than known about this situation. And so we have to work through incrementally. We have to work through, we have to try something, we have to check how that's going, and then we have to react and plan and replan and try something and see how that's going and react and replan. And, and we're doing that every week. We're checking, checking data against these new models and seeing what the new curves look like. And, and these guys got together and they said, you know, what if software could look like that? What if, what if we could just do a little bit of work, just enough work to get feedback from a customer and then get that feedback maybe a week or two later, incorporate that feedback into the next week, week or two's worth of work and repeat that over and over and over. So what it basically said was instead of waiting 24 months to figure out if we built the right thing, what if we just check in every couple of weeks with the people that are going to pay us for this work and make sure that we're aligned with them, make sure that we're developing and creating something that they want and make sure that we're staying true to, you know, the vision of the product. And, and that's kind of where things took off. And so fast forward 20 years, we're still trying to figure out how do we take these big companies and move them away from this hierarchy and, and position and authority focus to customer focus. We're getting better at it. But the, the big idea is we favor rapid feedback. And so we try to do just enough to, to deliver to a customer and just get that little bit of feedback so that we stay constantly aligned to them. Does that make sense? It does to me. Uh, and so that, that way of doing up everything up front, uh, that would be considered a waterfall, correct? Sure. Or just traditional development or traditional um, work. And, and some people are, there's probably some people listening. They're like, well, wait a minute, that works in some context. And my answer to that is I agree. You know, I, I think when you're building a house, once construction starts, you'd better have a good plan in place. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that kind of work. You know, building a house. Now, I would say designing a house is complex. I would say that designing a house, um, designing a house has the, you can rapidly prototype that. You could test things out. You can do a lot of things in, in, uh, in software that would kind of illustrate and you can render the house and you can, but once you, once you break ground, once you pour concrete, you're now, you better have that plan in front of you. You better have the wiring documents and the, the floor joist patterns figured out and, you know, all the, the plumbing and where you're going to route wires and, and that needs to be figured out. Uh, because you can't, I mean, you cannot just change and, and turn on a diamond. If you don't believe me, get in the middle of a house build and decide that that third bedroom is going to be on the second floor instead of the first and watch what your general contractor does. They absolutely freak out. So there's different types of work that work. Like if we were to think about the different types of work um, that we typically see, that's not complex. So when I say, and, and some people are like, wait, it's not easy. I agree. When I say complex, more is unknown than known about the work that we're doing, which means we have to discover things. When we start to start off building a house, we have the plan. We know exactly what we, what we need to do. We know exactly how we need to do it. We know the codes we need to follow. Everything is known. It still takes a lot of skill. It still takes a lot of craftsmanship. It still takes an amazing amount of talent that I personally do not have to build that house, but they know, up, they know what the plan is. When we go off into our creative endeavors, if you're writing a book or painting a, a painting or writing software, the endpoint could surprise you. 
And, and that's kind of the difference, right? So I'm not diminishing one type of work or trying to elevate one over the other. But what I'm saying is when we don't know things, we need a different way of working uh, to have a way to safely discover and to react quickly to those, to those learnings. And a lot of people seem to have a hard time with that shifting to that mindset, uh, the agile mindset. Do you think that's because of human nature or culture or is it the technology and things are just more complex nowadays or why is that? Look at the, I think it's been since, uh, since humans were created, we've had this, this desire for control and certainty, right? The fall Mm -hmm. of man was because of some desire of control. Um, and so from the very beginning, we've had this wired in us to be rebellious, but also to control and also to, um, to have this need of certainty uh, in our lives. And I think that's what really that wiring gets us almost every time. Right. And mm-hmm. so, that, I mean, look again, to go back to uh, the COVID-19, everything that you're seeing, the panic, the mass, buy, I mean, toilet paper of all things, you can't still can't find it in some areas. That panic buying psychologically is a, is a control coping mechanism. I can control what I, the supplies that I have. And so people go overboard on that. And, and it's that, that control factor. And so that bleeds into our work and it really does trip us up because there are just some things that I'm not saying it's, it's by chance or by luck, but there are some things that are going to, are going to happen regardless of the amount of illusion of control we try to have. And so rather than try to fight against that, Agility basically says we're going to work in small enough batches over a short enough time period that we can adapt and change to the learnings and surprises and not have them derail us. And so look at companies. Um, When we were kids, Mike, um, Kodak, massive company, right? Mm -hmm. Blockbuster video. My kids do not know what it means to rent a video. They just think it's Amazon Prime or, or download from Amazon and they stream movies and they think that's how it always was. I've tried to explain to them a few times that the buildings that now sell CBD oil, they used to be filled with rental videos. <laughs> and I've tried to explain how this works. Um, but if you look at companies like Blockbuster or Kodak or even BlackBerry, remember the BlackBerry phone? Oh, yeah. Yep. I loved my BlackBerry. Barack Obama, former president of the United States. Loved his BlackBerry so much, he, he actually said, I won't give it... I mean, when you have the president saying that this is my phone of choice, you've met... You're at the top of the world, right? And uh, look what happened to those companies. Right. Where's Kodak? Where's Blockbuster? Where's BlackBerry? So Kodak is niche right now. So they're basically doing like retro, like, oh, I miss film. But they're not the company they once were, but they should have been the digital giant. They were yeah. posed. They were in the perfect position. Um, to have the whole digital camera market. And when they said, and they actually, they've documented this. There's decisions that they made where they basically said, you know what? Uh, if we go digital, it's going to negatively impact our film market. So we're not going to, we're just, we're going to stay out of that because that's just not going to happen. So of course, Canon and Nikon and, and a bunch of other companies showed up and said, well, sure, we'll eat lunch. Blockbuster, you know, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for like $10 million. I mean, there, there's like this, and that I don't think a lot of people know that, that at one point Blockbuster like had the opportunity, like I think Netflix approached them and said, we'd really love to, yeah. um, really love to, to be purchased. We think this is a great platform. And Blockbuster said, nope, we're making too much money off of rentals. No one's ever going to want to stream anything. Uh, and, and it just, you, you see how these stories play out. Interestingly enough though, Netflix started uh, as a dating uh, website. So I did not know that. The platform was built 
to hold, you know, the videos like, hi, I'm Ryan. I like long walks on the beach. And, I see, and all this, you know, you do the five, five minute or 30 second video clips. Well, they, this dating site, they built a platform because they had all those videos they needed to play in store. And they're like, well, wait a minute, we're getting really good at, at, at like video distribution. And they saw, they saw this market need and they shifted and pivoted. And it was a really fascinating kind of change that, uh, and it's a real contrasting example. You know, Blockbuster refused to buy them because they were focused on late fees and rentals. And that model never was going to stay, stay around forever with the digital age. Meanwhile, Netflix is born of some other alternate idea where they pivoted and turned into, I mean, Netflix is legitimately one of the biggest movie houses uh, and content like TV show creators on the planet. They're winning awards left and right. I mean, some of their shows, I mean, Mike, you've watched Tiger King, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've watched one episode. It's a, I mean, it's the number one watched show on the planet right now. I mean, I think the quarantine helped it, but who would, if, if I would have come up to you and said, Hey Mike, this new Netflix thing, if it's 10 years ago, they're going to have the top shows, TV shows yeah. on the planet five years from now or 10 years from now, you would have been like, dude, no way. The today, and now they're, they're crushing it. So, I mean, it's that ability to adapt. That's what agility really is. Yeah. And the companies who don't get it, they end up like, Blockbuster and Kodak and BlackBerry, you know, minimized players who, who just could not see uh, the necessity to change and they lost. Yeah. And there's a lot of flexibility to uh, agile in a lot of people seem to have our time grasping that like there's, they're looking for a certain way to do agile or certain way to do scrum. And you know, two different companies could be doing scrum or agile and they could be doing it completely differently. Is that right? So there is a scrum guide. Like there are some principles and values that we follow. There's mm-hmm. some practices that we all adhere to, but you're absolutely right. The way that, you know, scrum is a framework. Uh, Agile is four values and 12 principles and how you enact and enable those, those values and principles or the framework itself uh, in your organization. Look, place place that's, that's the difficulty. There is this desire, but it's back to certainty. Give me the playbook give me the 300 page manual that goes from idea to product delivery nirvana. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't exist. Like we have to do the hard work of learning. It's like, you know, we, the better part of the, the 19th and 20th century were, um, you know, factory work. It was the, the, the work of creating things we already understood. Like we, we were optimizing how many widgets we could get out the door, like automotive manufacturing and, and all these great things today though, the, we're doing knowledge work. We're not making widgets anymore. We're, all that stuff is overseas. That work is, um, for the most part, not the, the biggest part of our economy. Knowledge work, thought work, the, the process of thinking and discovering, which means our organizations are no longer manufacturing. Our organizations are knowledge-based. They, we, in, we are in the business of learning. And that is such a fundamental shift because that's, I mean, how do you learn? Some people are visual learners. Some people are, are audio learners. Some people have to write things down a hundred times before it sticks. And there's all this serendipity and happenstance and, you know, oh, I happened to take a walk and finally figured this thing out. And, and it's not clean. It's not linear. It's kind of messy. And that really mm-hmm. is uh, breaking a lot of people's minds, but it is the new way of work. And, and I think that when we make that, that shift, that we are now knowledge-based organizations and we're in the business of learning, if you can make that mental shift, a lot of these ideas start to make sense. But if you're stuck in this idea that you know, we have 
you know, this, this set of raw materials and this plan, and we need this many widgets by the end of the day, these ideas and practices are not going to click. In your book, you, there's two keywords that popped up quite a bit. One was empiricism and the other one was transparency. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So empiricism, uh, what we're referring to is empirical process control. And that means we're making decisions based on observable things, right? It's, it's the scientific method, right? We are, we're trying something, we're observing what happened when we tried something and we're adapting to what we learned. So the pillars of empiricism, how we bring these to life, one of them is transparency, which you mentioned. Uh, the next is inspection and then, and the last is adaptation. So transparency means all of the, all of the work is understood. And that means that our, we show our work. So there's nothing hidden. There's no silos in organizations. There's no hidden work. Progress is clear. Um, we have open lines of communications with stakeholders. We are acting in a very clear, above board, transparent way. And we do that because we need to be able to inspect our work at all times. So people who are able to inspect the work can take a look at where we're at, what we're doing, how we're faring in the marketplace, the customers, are the users happy? How's the budget going? All the business and user and social factors about our product, they can inspect those things. And when we're falling short of what we thought we, we should be doing, when we're not getting the value that we thought we could be getting, we make adaptations, right? So we, we change what we're doing to, to, to get back on track and, and get towards the outcomes, not the output, the outcomes that we're after. And so empiricism is really the dance between transparent work, inspecting the work, and making adaptations that get us the outcomes we're after. So transparency, let's talk about transparency, because I think it's uh, fear is really what holds a lot of people back from being transparent. Because if you're transparent at work and you do something wrong, you're going to get in trouble. So how do you, uh, you know, there's this whole idea of psychological safety in the workplace. How do you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've spent a lot of my time in the, in the fortune 500 in leadership roles. So it's whether manager, manager, director, vice president. Um, and my job, I've always felt that when I was in one of those roles, my job was to make it, um, insanely easy for someone to give me bad news. Like that's the, so I, I'm a, I'm a very simple minded kind of guy. Like I, I work in go, what I call golf swings. And so, or I'm, I'm sorry, swing thoughts. So when I'm golfing, I'm a terrible golfer. I tear up um, fairways pretty badly. Um, but if I can keep one thought in my head, like, you know, keep, Ryan, keep your head down. And if I can keep that one thought and swing, I can usually hit the ball pretty clean. And so in management, my one thought was always make it easy for people to disappoint you or make it easy for people to give you bad news. And so I had to teach myself that when someone would come up and say something unexpected has happened, or when they would tell me that a project is off track, I had to learn how to pause. Like I had to pause and then say, how fascinating, what new opportunities does this lead to? Right? Yep. Because if I go off and start yelling, or if I start, well, fine, but this is going to hit your bonus, or, or wow, you've just put your job in jeopardy by not hitting expectations, they're never going to tell me anything again. I've created a hostile environment to where it's not safe for them to tell me um, what's going on. To put it into uh, more familiar terms for people, perhaps, I had, a, I had some really great mentors. I have had, my career's not over, so I shouldn't say I had some great mentors. I have great mentors. Um, one of them was telling me about the way that he handled his teenage son, specifically around underage drinking, right? So let's take it out of software and out of business for a minute. You know, he, he sat down with his son when he turned 16 and he was handing over a 
set of cookies. Look, I want you out drinking. It's illegal. It's immoral. It's not something you're supposed to be doing. But if you ever find yourself in a situation where you've driven somewhere, right, and, and you have engaged in this and you started drinking and as 16-year-old boys are, are kind of, you know, like to do. Yeah, we're not going to tell too many stories there, Mike. <laughs> um, but if that happens, you can call me. I will come and pick you up. We will figure out how to get your car home. There will be no questions asked. There will be no punishments dished out. And to him, uh, and I, we, as we were talking through this one day, because I, and I don't even remember why it came up. It was just, you know, we were talking through a situation and, and he kind of, kind of tangented off to this. He basically said, look, I want my kid to survive being a teenager. Um, I want him to be able to ask for help if he's in a horrible situation. I would much rather navigate the horrible situation with him than punish him. And if I punish him, I don't have the opportunity to step in in that situation. Instead, I risk a drunk driving accident. And ironically, two months later, he came in and he said, remember I told you about that policy? Well, I got a phone call this weekend and I had to go pick up my kid. And I asked him, did you stick to the principle that you laid out? And he said, absolutely. We never said another word about it. You know, his mom and he's like, my, his mom and I, we didn't... Uh, you know, we, we had some questions, but they were very positive questions. And once those questions, and they, they weren't directly related to that incident, but they kept to the deal. And from the, they've, they've had a great open relationship uh, with, that, with their son to where they're able to talk about things. They've kept him out of trouble. He's grown up into a great young man. Um, and it's some really tragic things could have been avoided. We can apply that to our work. Like, what if we decide we're not trying to lay blame all the time? What if we all decide that we're on the same team, the same people are, are signing our paychecks, right? Just because I'm a VP doesn't mean my check comes from a different place. If we just we're all in the best intentions forward, trying to get through these, these, these crazy projects. Um, and we just support one another rather than looking for ways to ding each other. You know, it's, I find that in the modern corporation today, I see a lot of, see a lot of people trying to outrun the bear. Are you familiar with this, Mike? Mm -mm, tell me. Look, you don't have to out, if you're in a group of people and a bear's chasing you, you don't have ah, to outrun the bear. You right. just have to outrun the second, the next slowest person. And, and what would happen if you go ahead and just wounded that person and made sure they fell? <laughs> well, then you're guaranteed to get away, right? Right. There's a lot of that in the corporations and it just makes me crazy. But the thing is, if that's happening in your corporation, the leadership team has, they've incentivized it. So I think you actually get the culture you deserve. You get the culture that, that you talk. So maybe this is a good spot to have that cultural conversation. So I, I think we get uh, the cultures that we deserve. I, and let me define culture because I think culture and psychological safety and all the things we're talking about come really into play here. Mm -hmm. culture, culture is the worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate, right? So in your company, in your home, in your church, in your family, where, whatever situation you're in where a culture is being developed, the worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate defines the culture that you're in. And so I, I think that's important. And by the way, leaders, if you are the ones behaving poorly, you're setting that bar low from the start. And so if, if there are these, these negative behaviors, if we're allowing people to get yelled at and blamed, and if that's more important than delivery, well, guess what? You have a culture of blame and delivery. I, um, but I think as leaders, we can turn that around. When I've been in um, positions where I wasn't in the leadership role, where I was that individual contributor, I would have very open conversations with my boss. 
that look, here's, I'm always going to give you an open uh, line of communication on status. Um, I'm going to tell you exactly where I'm at. I'm going to tell you when I need help, but I'm always going to take responsibility for the choices I make. And that was the trade-off I tried to establish with the leader. And that usually went very well. Um, they usually were like, okay, I get that. Um, I appreciate that. Keep, you know, keep me informed. And, and I always tried to make sure I kept to my commitments, but also took responsibility. And, and that kind of set a tone that other people would follow too. And so I think even though we're not in that leadership chair, um, we can um, help set that tone and set that example as well. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, so when I was reading your book, um, I had a few thoughts while I was reading it. So I'm just going to go through and ask you a few questions about those. Uh, your book is, I would say it's written from primarily the, the viewpoint of a scrum master. Would you agree with uh, yeah, that? Yeah, I would agree. Yep. Okay. And so a scrum master is, if people aren't familiar with scrum, I, a lot of people describe it as a, a, a parallel to uh, a typical project manager, but it's, it's different in a lot of ways. And they don't really tell people what to do. They're more of a coach. They try to get people to adhere to the values of Agile and Scrum. Would you agree with all that so far? Yeah, I think you're on. You're going on a good track here. All right. So in have you? That made me think. Like there are these dominant personalities on teams. And if have you ever had a, a dominant personality look at the scrum master and say, "There's a lack of leadership here," because he's not telling people what to do. He's not taking control. He's just coaching and and guiding. And so that dominant personality might say, hey, I'm going to be the traditional project manager and start trying to take control of the team. Have you had that situation? How did you deal with it? If not, how would you deal with it? Yeah. So we, we see that crop up from time to time. And we, we talk about it quite a bit in the book about that, that scrum master needing to ensure that all voices are heard and that the things are facilitated in a way that everyone has a chance to, uh, to get their two cents in. And when that dominant developer pops up, we just make it very transparent. We just start asking questions. Hey, does everyone else agree that this is the direction we need to go mm. in? We try to create opportunities for people who, like, look, when a, what I have found, the dominant developer, they're usually the most insecure person on the team. Mm. They are very threatened by the idea of transparency, in my experience. They are threatened by the fact that suddenly their work is going to be exposed. Um, they're threatened by the fact that uh, there's nowhere to hide anymore. That uh, The one thing that will really cause this person to, and I'm speaking in general terms, there's a lot of different reasons this happens, but uh, there's this idea of collective product ownership or co collective code ownership and agility where uh, no one person owns any one piece of a code base or of a product. The team collectively is responsible and accountable for delivery. And so, I'm sorry, the dev team is, is accountable for, for delivery and quality. And so suddenly the hero antics that have gotten people promoted up to this point or that we've praised and rewarded, those don't work. And that really upsets people because they want to be the hero. They want to be the person who stayed up till 6 a.m. You know, the previous day and saved the day. And, but what we found through transparency is those people were actually the ones creating the most problems in the first place. And so they try to reassert their, their, their sense of control. It's always, it, I shouldn't say always, the majority of the time, the behaviors we see and the, the trends and the tendencies, there's this idea of control and certainty that are at play that people are trying to pull back towards. And I spend a lot of my time, whether coaching, teaching, or training, trying to get people away from this mindset. But, but this dominant person is trying to control in an uncontrollable situation. 
Now think about what we're doing with Scrum. We're basically saying, Scrum team, you are a self-organizing team, which means you decide how best to do your work. You decide how to, how to go about doing your work. You decide how you're going to collaborate. You decide who's on your team. You decide how you're going to best deliver a product. Well, that is unnerving to management. That is unnerving to development leads. That's unnerving to um, controlling personalities. And, and we see these people kind of like a, a switch will go off in them and we really have to rein them in a bit. And sometimes they just, it won't work. Right. I think one of the dirty secrets of adopting agile practices is that you're probably going to lose 10% of your people. This will not be, this will not be congruent with uh, the way that they want to work. There's not a lot of individual recognition on these teams. We win together. You know, when the Chicago Cubs won the world series in 2016, did they just thank um, Chapman? No, (laughs) it was a whole team effort and great coaching and great management. And, and so that's what we're, we're kind of thinking of here. It's the whole, we win as a team, we lose as a team. And, and the, some of those principles and values just don't fit. And they, they're not bad people. They just have different needs. And, and those needs will not be met in this environment. And so other environments are better for them. But I really, I, I rely so heavily on transparency. I really just try to bring things to the forefront. I try to bring things to the light and, uh, and let people sort through them as adults. And, and that's worked pretty well. Uh, at least from a scrum master stance. I do have a, a, another swing thought though, where I have zero tolerance for anything that gets in my team's way of success. And that could be an unruly teammate as well. When I'm in the scrum master role, I've got three things that I'm really focused on. I love my team. And that's a weird word to use in tech, the word love, right? But it means that I feel so strongly about these people succeeding and doing well and becoming better versions of themselves and helping them attain this this new level of, of what's possible. I have that strong a feeling for that. The second thing is that I want these people to be wildly successful, right? I, I am there for their success, not mine. So nothing about the Scrum Master role has anything to do with my success, my agenda, my promotion. You know, it's all about, it's a servant leadership role for the people that I'm serving. And so I'm, I'm my, it's an outward focus and I want these people to be wildly successful. And the third thing is I have zero tolerance for any kind of impediment, whether it's a team or an organizational impediment that gets in the way of the team's success. And if I, if I follow those three thoughts, I'm going to take care of that dominant personality. I'm going to take care of, you know, a corporate system that, that's not geared towards teamwork. I'm going to take care of a broken build server. I'm going to take care of infrastructure and architecture that's not quite right. Like I'm going to find the ways to, to help the team manage through those difficulties and we're going to succeed. And I think that's, um, you know, it, it's, it's just bringing those things to light and it's not tolerating um, these poor practices and behaviors. Does that make sense? It does. That's really good. Uh, you make a distinction um, between committing to PBIs and committing to a sprint goal. Yeah. Can you expand on that and also tell people what a PBI is and what a sprint yeah. is? Yeah. So in, in Scrum, we work in sprints and a sprint is just a time box. And so when we're doing Scrum, we cannot exceed one month without getting feedback from a customer. Uh, and so a sprint can be no longer than a month, right? But a sprint can be one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, it could be a day, it could be three. It, it's whatever, it's a planning horizon. 
So it's whatever length the, that the scrum team and the organization deems most appropriate. So a sprint is just a, a container of time, right? It's you know, one week, two weeks, three, three weeks, four weeks. And so during that time, we're doing work. Um, what's the other piece you wanted to know about other than sprint? A PBI, right? PBI, yeah. So a PBI is a product backlog item. I know that's not helpful. <laughs> so think of it like, like a feature, right? Think of it like a user story. Uh, a, P- a PBI, a product backlog item, it's just something we intend to build. I think we intend to create a description of that thing. It has a title, it has a description. There's usually some kind of effort estimate, some kind of value estimate. There might be some acceptance criteria so that we know we got it right or so that we know we met what, the, what our product owner wanted. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a description of something that we're going to build. And so when we talk about commitment, if we go back to that whole discussion about complexity, if more is unknown than known in our complex knowledge working space, and let's say we're working in a two-week sprint, I cannot in good conscience commit to having 10 things done in a sprint because I just don't know like what's going to be possible, what's going to, like work is emergent. Like that, all that means is we're going to learn stuff. As it's, so there's this great Twitter feed, uh, Woody Zool on Twitter. If you're in the agile space, or if you're in the product space, he has this saying where he says, it is through doing the work that we learn about the work we need to do. And it sounds like fortune cookie logic, but it's actually brilliant. You know, it is, we have to do the work to figure out the work that needs to be done. It's very, very, it's, think about that statement for a little while. And I think you'll realize that our work emerges over time. And so we cannot commit to individual features during a sprint, during this time boxed period. But what we can do is say for the next two weeks, our goal is to enable customers to give us money. That is a sprint goal. Now we can commit to that. And over the next two weeks, we need to figure out how do we meet that goal? And at the beginning of a sprint, we have this event called sprint planning. Uh, Maybe we were like, all right, we're going to integrate Amazon Pay, Apple Pay, and PayPal. And our product owner, the person who's trying to maximize the value of our work, maybe our product owner says, hey, Amazon Pay is most important. It covers the most number of users and then Apple Pay and then PayPal. Let's say that we thought in the beginning, at the beginning of the two weeks, we could do all three, right? But on day three, we come back to our product owner as the dev team comes back and says, hey, look, Amazon's really hard to work with at a commercial level. Um, We're having some trouble getting the contracts and the agreements and the APIs and all that stuff figured out. We know we're going to swarm this. We're going to all work together. We're going to get Amazon Pay integration completed, but Apple Pay and PayPal are going to have to wait for another time. Great. We get to the end of the sprint. The dev team's able to get Amazon Pay done, but we, they, as they said, uh, Apple Pay and PayPal did not make it in this sprint during this two weeks. Would you say that that was a successful sprint? Sure. Right. So you've read the book, right? Most people yeah. who come from a traditional background, they say, oh no, they failed because they didn't do the two other features they committed to. Mm-hmm. The commitment was not to the features. The commitment was to print End of two weeks, customers will able will be able to give us money. Guess what? Amazon Pay is done. Customers can give us money. Now, what's interesting is we have this event at the end of a sprint called Sprint Review. What if we get some customers and some some stakeholders and some users and some executives and and the dev team and everyone together in a room and we find out, hey, guess what? 99% of our customer base has an Amazon account because pretty much everyone on the planet has an Amazon account. 
And it turns out Apple Pay and PayPal, yeah, we don't really need those right now. Things are going well. Let's go focus on the next most valuable thing. Well, what, we, what just happened there is we, 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 we found out that there was work we didn't need to do. My favorite line of code is the, code that we, is the line that we don't write. It, does, it costs $0 to maintain something you don't do, right? It's really cheap. Um, it's the, I, I just, I love minimal but sufficient. And so what we learned in this, you know, contrived scenario that I'm modifying to my own benefit is that those two things would have been waste. They would have been things that we just did not need. And it frees us up for the next two weeks then to focus on the next most important uh, piece of value we can go after in the market. That's powerful. If we had treated this like a traditional project, those two features would have just automatically been in the next sprint. All right, we're going to go work on those. But no, we paused. We, all of our work in progress was transparent. We inspected the current state of our product in the review. We got some feedback that said, hey, this is good enough for now. And so our adaptation is to move on to the next most valuable thing. If we can do this consistently over time, we're going to eat the lunch of every competitor who's insisting on working the old way. And that's not, uh, that's something that you need to uh, manage expectations and communicate that because uh, if a product owner and stakeholders come into the sprint uh, review thinking they're going to get all those PBI uh, items and you're just saying that you have the goal complete, things are not going to go well. So there's got to be some ground laying there to start with, right? Well, if a product owner is ever surprised by what's been built, uh, the, something's gone horribly wrong. So the, the scrum master, the product owner, and the development team members, they're all part of the scrum team. The product owner and the dev team are working continuously together. Um, when we made that decision to drop Apple Pay and PayPal, the product owner was right there in the room uh, discussing that with them and, and on board and collaborating about that. There was no surprises at the end. Like this is, this is another one of those big topics that come up where traditionally in, in large companies, you know, honestly, and even small startups, you'll see business versus IT, right? There's battle. Basically, Scrum says is, we basically say this is stupid, right? Everyone is getting paid by the same company. We're all here to deliver great things for customers. Business for IT is not sustainable in a successful company. In fact, business and IT work, there's actually no business or IT in an agile company anymore. There are teams of people with varying skills, whether it's a business background, an IT background, an engineering background, a finance, legal, HR, cross-functional teams, self-organizing teams who are able to deliver value to a customer. So instead of having being grouped by these functions, we're grouped by ways that we serve customers. And so all of that business versus IT has to go out the door. And suddenly we're just a group of people there to deliver great things, uh, to put value into the world. And that's another big shift. And so... Agile and Scrum are not just for IT. Agile and Scrum are not just for engineers and developers. The entire organization has to shift their mindset away from these siloed groups to these, these teams that are designed to deliver value. And that's, a, that's another one of those big hurdles, getting rid of that mentality of business over here, IT over there, one serves the other. And instead, it's, it's all one team. And you talk about uh, having teams work non-sequentially and it's really, that's been one of the harder concepts for me to grasp because it, let, me, let me throw three 
things at you. One is, um, you know, if, if you're a designer, you're going to be the most efficient at designing. And uh, th- there's a book out there called Flow. I don't know if you've read it, but yep. a- achieving flow, you know, you're doing things that are in that sweet spot of just challenging enough, but not too challenging. And so if you're having a designer do something else or having a tester do something else, how are you achieving that flow? And how, is, how are you even able to do it? I mean, if, if you're starting a sprint, what is, what's a tester doing when the designer is staring at a blank screen? It's like, how do you, uh, I mean, you can't be keeping everybody busy. How, how does that work exactly? So I think flow is awesome if we're trying to optimize the flow of work for a team. When we start optimizing flow for individuals, we run into problems that you just brought up, right? And so I want to optimize the way that a team works together, not the way that any one individual component or person of that team actually works. And so the question of, well, what can a designer do at the beginning or the middle or the end of a sprint or what about a tester? What about a developer? Look, that's for the... That's really up to the talented individuals on a self-organizing cross-functional team to discover. But I will say this, every developer has the ability to be a tester. Every tester has the ability to be a developer. Every designer can sit down and partner up with a tester and or a developer. They call this the three amigos, by the way. (laughs) Um, It's a design pattern that George Dinwiddie... Uh, came up with this, I believe. And if you Google it, you'll see that this is actually a really interesting way to develop software um, where you have a designer, a tester, and a programmer collaborating together at one keyboard on the best ways to implement features and how to get them done in a high quality, great experience, and optimal programming way. And so when these disciplines come together to collaborate and swarm and pair on work, we start seeing, first of all, skills start bleeding over what, ha- what would happen if a programmer understood user experience just a little bit better? What would happen if a designer understood the limitations of a programming language just a little bit better? What would happen if everyone got off of their high horse and decided that they were capable of testing and that testing should be a continuous activity throughout a sprint, not just at the end? Um, I think that would lead to an amazing collaborative team who's capable of delivering awesome things by the end of a sprint. If we stay in our specializations and only stay in our lanes, now we are, we, we've siloed our work. I don't actually don't think team flow is, is possible in that kind of setup. So I, I would say optimize at a team level and stop worrying about optimizing individual skills. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Uh, so we talked about dominant personalities a little bit. Let's let's talk about introverts now. And you talk in your book about uh, getting introverts uh, in, as you know into the conversation, but introverting introverted thinking, you know, they need time to process things, and it just seems like everything is kind of time box into this sprint planning meeting. And so how does Scrum allow introverts to, you know, go simmer on things for a bit? Yeah, we are, we're thinking, we're planning, we're replanning every day. And so as things come up, they can discuss them. I I think it's a very valid concern though. Uh, The introverts are now put into this kind of team collaborative, uh, highly collaborative situation. And so what Todd and I brought to Fixing Your Scrum and what we're working on in our next book, um, there's the this great communication technology called Liberating Structures. And we have found that through using 
very clean and precise facilitation structures and techniques, we can give the, the introverts time to think. We can give the extroverts time to, time to shine. Everyone's up at the end of the lectures feeling like their voice has been heard. Um, to, to dig too deeply into liberating structures would take, you know, 10 more podcasts. But if listeners go to liberatingstructures.com, it's a great introductory site. Uh, Todd and I, our second book is on liberating structures. We're hoping to have that completed by the end of this year. And hopefully we can have it in people's hands by the winter. Suddenly we have enough time to sit around and write, uh, which is uh, maybe one of the benefits of being quarantined. But um but I think this is this and, technology. And you, you just uh, you just had the liberators on your own podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. We just talked to Barry and Christian. Um, so they are in the Netherlands, uh, two really high end liberating structures experts. Todd and I, we're starting to. I think we're growing, growing to that role here in the U.S. Um, um, there, there's some great practitioners all around the world, though. Um, but yeah, this technology, I think this is the next big thing. I think liberating structures, and it's not just for tech. I mean, these are being used in churches. It's being used in schools. It's being used um, in marriage counseling. They're being used wherever we need people to pause, reflect, discuss, but in not in big groups, but in smaller um, in smaller pieces. It's It's even meetings, like retrospectives, you know, board meetings. I mean, have you ever shown up to a meeting, Mike, that just sucked? Oh, yeah, on, on one occasion or two, yeah. One occasion or two. Well, we've started using uh, various liberating structures to fix meetings. There's actually, an, on my YouTube channel, um, there's a 30-minute uh, YouTube video of me facilitating a room of 400 people with liberating structures. And so I've scaled this out up to five or 600 people. I've used it with as few as, as you know, five or 10 and uh, some interesting results. I'll send you the link to that, uh, to that YouTube video. I think people would be really interested in seeing, you know, how these structures can be used to get 400 people on the same page within an hour. It's pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll add that to the uh, show notes. Uh, going back to introverts, I think, um, and you talk about this in your book too, I think, is keeping teams stable. Because uh, if you're adding people and taking people out of this, out of teams all the time, it really destabilizes the team. And for introverts, that's a big deal because uh, having established stable relationships in a team will help them uh, open up. And so I think it's crucial to keep uh, teams stable, uh, not just for that reason, but you talk about other reasons as well in your book. So that was really good. So, you know, you know what, Mike, I, one of the things that just drives me crazy when I go into a company and, and look, this makes sense logically. And I feel people have beaten them, but this just to me, this like really hits me in the heart when I see it, you know, I, I, and I'll hear this great story from people like, yeah, we, we built up uh, this first scrum team. They, they, they were together for six months. Um, they started doing great work together. Um, it started seeing a lot of success. Things are going really well. And then, you know what? We wanted to spread Scrum throughout the organization. So we broke that team up into nine different teams. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh no, why would you slaughter a unicorn? Why would you do that? And, and they look at me puzzled. I'm like, you had a high, high functioning uh, Scrum team. They were delivering products. People were happy. They were working well together. That's so rare. Like, why would you ever risk that? Why would you, 
um, break that apart. Like, it, it, you know, think about like, let's go back. Well, that's not a good example. They did break up the 2016 Chicago Cubs. But when you have an, a, when you have an amazing band, like it did the Beatles once they, they sold, you know, a billion platinum records or whatever, did they say, hey, why don't we all break up and form five new bands? course not they stayed together as long as they could because they were great together all right if you don't like the beatles leave a comment below <laughs> telling me how wrong i am right but um you know let me liken it to to something else you know we're, we're both very happily married guys right mm-hmm. but it's taken and, and, and i don't know about you mike but my wife and i uh we will celebrate um 15 years this year congratulations thank you and so it's but I would say, and my wife would agree, if she were staying right here, she would nod in agreement. The first five were kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Like it was a lot of transition, a lot of growing up, a lot of maturing, a lot of learning about what each other needs, how we interact, how we communicate, how we work together, how we put you know the other person first instead of thinking about ourselves. All that stuff that happens as you learn how to be married, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. But it took us a number of years, and maybe maybe the maybe I'm being harsh. Maybe the first three were rough, and the rest have been really great. But now, 15 years in, like we just, uh, and we still work very hard at it. We very we protect our marriage. Uh, we make sure that we're we're always checking in. Like we don't take it for granted, but we're in a very good place. But it took 15 years to really get to this spot to where we really know how to to back off of a topic or to apologize quickly or to all those great things that you need to learn how to do. Now, imagine if every year it's a new wife, a new person, a new personality. It's a new set of rules. It's You could never get to that stable state. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Or at least to that state of understanding. Now, Matt, now take it back to teamwork. You know, marriage might be too personal to end. It's Take a team where imagine that every month it's someone new, someone new, someone new, someone. How would you establish team norms? How would you establish a team culture? How would you establish a way of working? How would you know how to resolve disputes and fights and misagreements and dis- misunderstandings and, and all those things like whether, whether it's a marriage or a, a scrum team or, or a basketball, oh, basketball team, whatever it is, if we don't have the time to learn how to do those things, we're in chaos, we're in flux, we're never quite stable. We're never quite um, harmonious. And I think we lose a lot when we, we shift people in and out of teams. I mean, I, I do a lot of leadership coaching. And so I, I'll work with VPs and executives and I'll say, look, first and foremost, when you move people in and out of teams, you are decreasing your performance of that team, right? You are, you are, you are basically saying, please do worse for two or three months. And so we need stable teams, right? And I'm not saying, and whether it's remote or in, in face-to-face, uh, that's not part of the equation. It's can a group of roughly 10 people get some experience working together? Can we keep them together long enough to where they can kind of get into a groove with one another and trust each other? Trust is a big part of it, where they trust each other uh, and give them the opportunity to do great work. And if you do that, if you make the space for that to happen, I think really, really wonderful things can occur. You mentioned remote, so let's let's talk about that now. Because uh, one of the values of, I think it's agile or, or maybe Scrum, but you know, to to have that face to face interaction, and it's uh, it's not quite the same. I don't think when you work remotely. Uh, but the benefits of working remotely, I think, are uh, there's a lot of benefits. So, 
And I think that's the way the, the future is moving to. And obviously, we're in a situation right now with quarantine of more people having to work remotely. What are your thoughts of integrating Agile and Scrum with, with remote work? I think it works. Um, keep in mind, in 2001, when the 17 Manifesto authors got together, uh, Zoom and Skype and GoToMeeting and, and Microsoft Teams or um, all those tools, they either did not exist or they were awful, right? So though that, that value was written in a time when um, the tooling was not great. Now, you and I are on a Zoom call. The audio is clear. We can see each other's faces. Uh, we can see kind of the, you know, I can see when you kind of cringe or laugh or smile or whenever I say, I can get some of that feedback. Is it, is it 100% face-to-face? No. Is it, is it really, really close? I think so. Um, so I think through tools and, and some other practices, uh, we can make this work. There's a really great book, From Chaos to Successful Distributed Agile Teams by Johanna Rothman and Mark Kilby. I think anyone having to work in a distributed uh, knowledge working environment should read that book. Um, but I think the tooling is there, you know, uh, to where things are getting better. But I would just throw the caution out there. It's not a one-to-one transfer. Now, if we're if if you've been working face to face in the same room with people, and now suddenly we're all working from home, my daughter walked in during this interview. We had to pause for a minute. That stuff's just happening, and you don't get mad. I just turned and smiled at her, or listened to what she needed, and told her I'd come out in a little bit and help her out. And she was like, "Okay, Daddy," and she walked off. And we continued our conversation, and stuff like that's going to happen now. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is any organizational dysfunction, any impediments, they're just amplified in a remote space. And so the Scrum Master role becomes immensely more important. Like we have to be on the ball and make sure that these now amplified issues uh, are dealt with even faster so that they're not slowing people down. And so I think um, with a great Scrum Master in place and and a team who's committed to supporting and helping one another, I think we can make remote work just fine. Um, It's not without challenges, but I think they're, I I think they're, they, at, at worst, they can be mitigated. Okay, uh, so you uh, you talk about self-organizing teams, and what if someone's implementing Scrum for the first time, and they're you know they tell the team, hey, this is what we're going to do, but at the same time, that's at the very you know at the very first step is not self-organizing. Would you let the team choose to do Scrum or not to do Scrum, or how would how what would be your ideal with that? I have never seen people when they're forced to do something celebrate a lot of success, right? And so Esther Derby, she's a, another uh, great agilist that I hope the listeners check out. She's got a great Twitter feed. She's written a number of wonderful books. Um, she's got this quote um, where she says, people are not resisting change. They resist coercion. And I 100% agree with her. If I were to show up and say, hey, Mike, I don't care what you want to do. I don't care what you've been doing. I don't care what your aspirations or goals are. Tomorrow, you're a product owner on a scrum team. Congratulations. (laughs) You may or may not be happy about that. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, what if I did this? What if I said, hey, Mike, I've got this product that we're launching. It's going to help people. You know, here's the vision that we're after. Here's the value we're going to try to put into the world. Um, here's how we're going to work as a scrum team. 
because we're decentralized a lot of decision to the development team. We want devs to be able to make decisions that are smart for the way they work. We want, you know, me, the product owner, I'm going to try to guide you guys on value, but yeah, it's really up to you. We're going to have this great person called a scrum master to make sure that things are just going great, that from a scrum perspective, we're doing fine. From an impediment perspective, we're taken care of and, and a lot of coaching and teaching and training along the way. But this is our goal. And we're trying to help these people. Does that inspire you? Do you want to join us? That's much better. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm a big fan of invitation right? And so we set these big visions and we set these big goals and we're upfront about how decisions will be made and how the structure of a scrum team will work. And we invite people to join us. And then what, what that does, and people are probably going, that could never work. Well, it's worked in some of the largest companies in the world, first of all. Um, but secondly, think about what it does to motivation. I no longer have to, Mike, are you busy? Mike, are you happy? you show up ready to work. You have skin in the game. You chose what to be committed to. You chose what to work on. The motivation becomes intrinsic, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and then what's even more interesting is I don't have to hold you accountable for anything because you're holding yourself personally responsible for something that you self-selected into. It's a total dynamic shift. It's a, it's a culture shift. It's, it's a... We're, we're going to do the work that, uh, that inspires people. We're going to frame things in a way that's meaningful to others. And we're going to invite people to join us on that journey. If, and if they don't want to join us on this one, we're going to find another one that resonates with them. And, and to me, that's how you create a company where people don't leave, where they're inspired, where they, where they strive to do their best work, when they bring their best selves forward. And I think that's, that's, a, that's the organization of the future. That is a... Um, that is a that will be an ingredient to long-lasting, happy, successful teams. There are so many skills um, that help make Scrum better, like facilitation, like coaching, like persuasion. What uh, you know, Scrum really just offers kind of a basic framework, to, so it's flexible, but. Uh, what, you know, what resources would you recommend to people, um, especially scrum masters who are wanting to learn those, those soft skills, I guess you'd call them. Uh, what would you recommend? You know, I, I'm very biased. Um, Todd Miller and I, we, we teach a class. Uh, it's the advanced scrum master class. It's dedicated to you know, what people call soft skills, but Todd and I just call it embracing uh, a servant leadership role. You know, the, the active listening, the, the powerful questions, the ability to put um, yourself asked. One of the hardest things about a scrum master is that nothing is about you. And so we spend a couple of days really rooting people in that. And so I think that advanced scrum master class is really good. Again, I'm biased, you know, I, I, but I, I love teaching that class because so many light bulb moments happen for people. Um, I think there's some really great books out there. I hope Fixing Your Scrum is a book that people turn to and they say, you know, wow, this is really a mindset change. I think Jeff Watts, the author of Scrum Mastery, has written a beautiful book about um, those softer skills and and what it means. And soft skills is so bad. I think it's just being a human being, you know? How do we show up as a better human being, I think, is a way to look at it. Jeff Watts has written a really great book called Scrum Mastery that helps there. Um, Radical Candor, Crucial Conversations. These are all books that, that can help. The whole emotional intelligence, you know, some of that's mumbo jumbo. Some of it's very real. Um, drive. Did you, did you mention Drive yet? 
No, I, you know what? Watch the 15 minute TED talk. Don't worry about the book. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, I think the TED talk will give you most of what you need. If you really want to dig into the academia side of it, read the book. But I think the big point here, you know, I've been doing this stuff for the better part of 20 years <clears throat> and I'm still learning. And, and I think that's the, be, be a lifelong learner and show some patience. And I think you're going to go a long way as well. Yeah, that's good. I was because I was thinking Scrum Masters, uh, Scrum Master just starting out and um, reading your book. Uh, I, I could make them feel like, wow, there's so much I I don't know. What would you, you know, to get that imposter syndrome when actually, you know, they're probably quite capable of doing it. How, what would you say to Scrum Masters just starting out to encourage them? Uh, you know what? Put your teams first, and you and you won't be wrong uh, most of the time, right? If you're if you're serving someone else, if you're trying to inspire someone to to greater heights, if you're trying to get other people supported, recognized, promoted, I think your your heart it will be in the right place, and it's going to be hard to do wrong from that stance. But just don't quit learning. Like uh, you know, there's a stack of what, three books on my desk that um, I, I did a show with Daniel Vacanti, the guy who created uh, what we call Kanban in North America, brought Kanban to North America, right? And we're on a show, we're just, and he's a good friend of mine, we're talking, he's like, Ryan, here's three books that if you haven't read, you have to get them right now. Because these books are just amazing for flow, for, for predictability. And so I'll share them with people. These are three books that a really super yeah. smart guy told me to get. Um, social physics, by Alex Pentland, really important on basically how social networks can make us smarter, right? So how the right type of collaboration and self-organization makes us smarter. Scrum theory in a book, right? <laughs> um, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. How do we do smaller things sooner and validate that they're correct and then put more, then make bigger bets? So instead of doing big, expensive things, let's do small experiments and learn. Again, empiricism at work. Um, and misbehaving. So the making of behavioral economics. Why do people do unexpected things? Why do, why do users and purchasers and, and all the, why do they not act in rational ways in trying to understand human nature? And so I'll read these three books in the next month or so and try to add some of that information to the way that I approach teams. And then Next month, there'll be two or three more books. And, but it's just a constant, like if you're deciding that you're going to be a professional scrum master. So I don't teach certifications. I, I teach professional scrum. And if you're going to be a professional scrum master, you're accepting that for the, from now until the day you retire, there will always be a stack of books on your desk that need to be read. There's always a podcast to listen to. There's always a video on YouTube that you need to watch. There's always something new to learn because we have to be amazing for the people we serve. We cannot show up mediocre. A scrum master, a servant leadership role is a position of honor. It's an honor to serve people and we have to show up in the best shape that we can and the best, uh, with the best possible skill sets that we have. And we're always honing our craft and sharpening that, sharpening that steel and trying to make sure that, that we are coming to our teams uh, in the best possible way to serve them as well as we can. That's good. I think we'll, we'll end that there. Our time's just about up. Um, what's next for you uh, on your project list, to-do list? So, I'm right to 
uh, Todd. We're teaching a bunch of virtual classes. So we, we took our in-person courses. We're teaching uh, the courses online. Um, so we've got a lot of teaching work coming up. So actually, if anyone out there wants to get some scrum training, uh, reach out. Uh, we are teaching classes over Zoom and using some other tools to help make it interactive. Uh, but we've got that going on, a book's going on, um, always doing new podcasts and YouTube shows. Conference speaking is kind of on hold since it's, uh, it's illegal in most states right now to gather in groups of larger than 10. So mm-hmm. conferences are kind of tricky. Um, but you know what? It's complex. Who knows what the future holds? Uh, right now, we're just... Uh, trying to flow with the complexity, uh, wake up every day, trying to do something good that makes progress towards a better tomorrow and um, inspect and adapt each day and see how it goes. And so, yeah, just trying to keep putting good things out there and, and hopefully good things come back. All right. So people can find your book, uh, Fixing, uh, Fixing Your Scrum on Amazon. I will link to that in the show notes. I will also link to your um, podcast Agile for Humans and uh, anything else you want me to link to, I will do that as well. Um, yeah, I think that is it for episode one. Ryan, thank you so much again for uh, doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Mike, it was fun. Thanks for having me on uh, the maiden voyage. <laughs> and uh, we'll get this, uh, we'll share this show with the Agile for Humans crowd and hopefully uh, we'll put this in the YouTube channel as well and hopefully we can get uh, some more people engaging uh, with your new uh, your new project. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you next episode.